Sass Backwards is sponsored by Austin Lawrence Group, specializing in demand gen for SaaS. It sure is noisy. I deleted 100 emails from vendors just this morning. Your buyer has gotten better at ignoring you, and you're going to need a big idea if you want to cut through all that clutter. Austin Lawrence is just the right agency to help you find it. So if your campaigns are falling on deaf eyeballs, let's talk. Visit austinlawrence.com today, and let's build something bigger. Welcome to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, where we reverse engineer the success of fast-growing SaaS firms and explore strategies CMOs and CEOs are using to drive their businesses forward. Welcome to SaaS Backwards, a podcast that helps SaaS CMOs and CEOs to accelerate growth and enhance profitability. Our guest today is Dave Becker, CEO and founder of Campus ESP. It's a SaaS that provides an all-in-one parent engagement solution for colleges and universities. Hey, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We're really excited to record this episode with you. Before we dig in, could you just give us some background on yourself and Campus ESP, please? Yeah, I've been in education technology for 25 years, from student information systems to CRM and engagement. And Campus ESP helps colleges and universities engage with parents and families so that schools can have more influence over where students enroll, but also whether and how they succeed getting through that college journey. Parents are really influential in the college application and through the college journey. So we help schools navigate that. Well, that's terrific. And when we talked before, you know, you told me that the path you guys took was as a bootstrap and you've been something of an overnight success, right? On that path. Yeah. Overnight success is definitely, you know, everything's in the definition. Everything from the outside looking in seems glitzy and, and fast moving, but there's a lot of work that went into it. And yeah, being bootstrapped doesn't mean that we didn't try to raise money. Frankly, we tried to raise money and we were not able to raise money. So we just bootstrapped it and we basically grew off of customers, which is great. And now we're in a place where we have over 260 schools using Campus ESP, over 4 million parents get communication from those schools through Campus ESP. And as you said, now we're an overnight success. Yeah, only like nine years later. Um, but, but I want to encourage you. I think we mentioned this when, when we talked before. Most of the overnight successes we've had the pleasure of working with are somewhere between like six and eight years to where things really start taking off. So I think you're just a successful startup company that took a normal glide path. So, yeah, I advise other startup entrepreneurs, and I always say, you know, however long you think it's going to take, it's going to take you twice as long. If somebody tells you, oh, it took me two years to get to where I'm at. More than likely, it's taken them four years, and we have that same journey at Campus ESP. I go back into my email and look at parent engagement. It's from back in 2013, where I was just researching the problem. And then when did I jump into it full-time? It was really 2017. So depending on like what you consider, I don't know, the starting point of Campus ESP, it could be five years or it could be nine years. And, and I think that's the same thing with a lot of startups, a lot of SaaS startups, which is, you know, a lot of people do it nights and weekends to start, they really get going. And I think that's pretty normal. Yeah. I mean, I think the side hustle path to entrepreneurship is well-worn and not everybody can afford to give up their day job to pursue yeah. a passion of a startup. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, I'd love to understand about the attempt on the venture raise. 
Can you give a little visibility into why that didn't work out and what you took away from that? I think I'm just bad at raising venture money because I have a lot of experience in ed tech, which means I have a lot of opinions. And, you know, when you're when you're pitching organizations, you have a lot of other experts there that think they know as well. So some of it is just it's tough, right? You have to recognize that they're going through a lot of deal flow. They're seeing at least 200 deals each year, 200 companies, probably a lot more than that. And they have to make determination and they have to make quick responses to to the requests that are out there. In Campus ESP's position, there was really nobody doing what we're doing. We were creating a market segment, which is college parent involvement. So there was a lot of education. And because we're creating this segment, there's a lot of risk. And, you know, that story, if I was to raise money now, I could probably raise money right now. But, you know, eight years ago when there wasn't that much traction and it was tough. So a lot of times I think, you know, people don't choose to bootstrap a lot of times. They are people who tried to raise money who weren't able to raise money, but were so passionate about the solution that they had and the problem that needed solving that they're just like, screw it. I'm going to go in it alone. And that's really what happened with Campus ESP. So was that a hard, so you were already operating the business. So it was just like you were trying to get the venture money to accelerate growth. Is that right? Yeah. Those first couple of customers are really difficult. Like I would say anything before 10 customers, you're grinding. And I have, a, this might be sharing too much, but like I'm pretty emotional and it was really, really tough. And, and uh, in my bathroom at home, I have a, a hole in the door where I just punched the door, there's literally a hole at eye level. And by the way, these are really cheap doors from like Home Depot that like almost anybody can punch through. I'm not saying I'm like amazing at punching, but there's a hole in there. <laughs> and my wife's like, you ever going to repair that hole? And I tell her, no. It's like that to me is a reminder of how hard it was those early years. Because as you progress through SaaS, as you grow a company, now we have 40 employees. Back in those days, it was just one or two of us. And it was really hard. And that hole kind of keeps me grounded. It's a reminder how hard this is. And I think that's what people sign up for. You know, now that things are going great, I love having those stories about how hard it was and how people rejected me and I'm able to prove them wrong. So I don't know, maybe that's just the anger inside me, but it it, it drives me forward. Yeah, I was going to ask you if any of those people you pitched, any of those VCs you pitched have come back to you. You know, it, we just had our annual user group meeting and we had close to 150 people register, which is, we're a small company. That was That's, amazing. That is amazing. Company. And at the kickoff, I told the story of the person who I went to, she's pretty high up at University of Pennsylvania in the Graduate School of Education. And she told me parent involvement's a fad. And she's like, I don't think you have a company here. And so that was, that was my kickoff speech to the community, which is like, we're no longer a fad. We went from fad to nice to have to need to have. And, you know, that's a whole journey. That's a whole journey that we went through over these last nine years, which is educating people, then educating them on the problem, educating them on the solution, and then positioning ourselves as a solution. And that's a lot of work. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. And it's a unique story. That is awesome. So I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned in our prep about what else you needed to get through that crunch. You talked about, you know, needing support around you. And I thought that was really useful insight if you don't mind sharing that. Yeah. You know, you always hear with startups that you need to have a great team, but that team starts day one 
idea day zero, in my opinion, which is, you know, your team, you don't, might not think about it, but I have a spouse, a partner who is amazing, who was working during all this. And she was part of my team. I was able to jump in and bootstrap campus ESP without taking a salary for a long time. In those early days, I was also part of an accelerator and then an incubator. And then, you know, I was around other people that even though they weren't directly connected to campus ESP, they were my support network. And sometimes it's just like group therapy to just keep going and to talk with other people that are going to keep nudging you along the path. Then we had advisors. We had formal advisors that believed in the mission of Campus ESP and were able to make connections. Then we had a couple early employees. So that support network, that team, you need to have that in place day one. I think, you know, for somebody who's in their 40s like me, I was able to assemble that team pretty quickly. For people who are in their 20s, you might not have that team. That might be a little bit more difficult. And that's where like energy really comes into play and like just pushing forward. So it's an interesting challenge. There's no way you could build a company and do it by yourself. You need to have people around you that are going to support you. That's very cool. I wanted to ask you about the environment you're operating in. You know, recently in the news, the news on the incoming class sizes is going to go down, right? Demography is working against some of the colleges and universities. And how does that play for Campus ESP? Are you viewing that as an opportunity or a threat or both? Probably more of an opportunity, I would say. You know, there's this notion of the demographic cliff that's out there from an enrollment perspective, which is there's just going to be less students that are going to college based off of birth rates and different demographics out there. If you say the year 2025 to any enrollment or marketing manager, they're going to like look up and be like, oh boy, that's where it's really supposed to start. So you know, enrollment is a challenge. That's the problem that we're ultimately solving, whether it's retention or recruitment or yield. We feel like parents play a role. So we have a very creative solution that is almost like a no-brainer. Of course, you want to reach out to parents and families to influence enrollment. And I think in some ways, the demographic cliff, in the same way that COVID actually has helped us a bunch too, which is more and more enrollment pressure, Everybody has that enrollment pressure. And so they're looking for solutions that can help them move the needle quickly. Yeah, I thought you might say something like that. It seems to me that parents are super influential in the decisions their kids make about college, right? From a life experience point of view, sometimes paying some much or all of the freight. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways parents can be an important ally to the the admissions people who are ultimately building those classes. Yeah, I agree with that statement a lot. I really do think, I mean, there's a lot that's happening in the world right now. So lots of reasons why parents are involved, but what I typically go back to, it's the cost of education. It is more than it's ever been. There's more loans going out. And a lot of times families are involved in those loans. So when you hear the term student success, for a lot of families, it means family success. And as much as everybody wants to have their students be independent and be able to think creatively and all those things, they also can't let them fail. Like it's too important. It's too expensive. So parents are just going to be involved. I always say that that's the reason why parent involvement is increasing. It's just the cost of education. That's an interesting notion. It's too expensive to fail, right? I mean, for a family, it's a huge investment. And for many families, you know, the son or daughter in college represents an important part of the whole future for the family. So it makes sense. When we talked before, you said initially you were focused on the students, right? And can you just give a little kind of description of the initial focus and how you came to realize that maybe that was the wrong side of the equation? Yeah, well, in a former life, I was 
actually at Pelusian, which many of your listeners probably have. And, and I was there for 14 years. And I knew coming out of there, I wanted to stay in education technology, very passionate about student success. So when you think about student success, of course, you focus on the students. And you think, okay, how can we build a better way to engage students? And so I visited some friends of mine. And one of those people in the very early days was like, you know, students aren't even going in and checking financial aid or anything like that. It's their parents that are going in and logging in as them into the student information system. And I was blown away by that. And so that was our very, very first early pivot where, okay, if we're trying to influence student success, why do it directly? Why not go through the parents and the families to influence student success? So we started looking at that. And by we, I mean I, because there was nobody else working on the company at that point. So I started researching it. And really for two years, from 2013 to 2015, I would just go to conferences. I would work with schools and we would do what I call parent engagement surveys, where we would just survey parents. And I just started to understand the problem a little bit more and how involved parents were and how schools were dealing with it. So those first two years were just research. There was no portal being built. There was no code being deployed. And that gave us a really strong data-based foundation for building campus ESP. So was that missionary work or were the campuses helping pay for that? A little bit of both. There was 14 schools those early days. I think about half of them paid me to come out and do a parent engagement review. And we would go through about 40 questions. At the end of the day, across all those schools, we again, I compiled 8,000 parent responses and probably did about 40 interviews directly with parents. And we had some amazing stats that even to this day, I always call back to, which is I believe it's 63% of parents said that they had their students' IDs and passwords in college, right? So that's scary. And that's something that like blew me away. Uh, there was another one that was interesting to me, which is after your student graduates, do you want to stay involved with your student's college? 25% say no. That, that seemed reasonable, right? 25% said yes seemed crazy. And then 50% said, maybe. And I was like, that's another opportunity around giving and internships and career support and mentorship. So these stats really became my North Star as we were building this solution. And even to this day in presentations, I call back to that 8,000 parent survey. Is there a possibility of rerunning those surveys? It's a leading question because we've encountered plenty of CEOs, you know, entrepreneurs who use the survey as a way to position themselves as a resource to the industry, right? It's a thought leadership exercise. Right. It sounds like that's that kind of data that would be so valuable. You know, this is what's interesting about it. So of that group, 14 schools that invested in that survey, their parents, in some cases, their time, their resources, only three became customers for Campus ESP. So there was a disconnect between doing this research and them implementing the solution. So it didn't become critical from a sales and marketing perspective for, for, for me. But as far as the thought leadership goes, yes, we actually partner with Ruffalo and Noel Levitz. And every year we do a survey that goes into parent involvement levels, maybe at a little bit higher perspective, just to like make sure that people in marketing and enrollment understand that these parents their involvement expectations, their communication expectations are increasing. And one of the stats, I'm looking over here at the stats, 85% of parents expect weekly communication from their students' college or university, which is crazy. And by the way, 
A year before when we ran that, it was 76%. And a year before that in 2020, it was 64%. So it went from 64 to 76 to 85%. So it's increasing. So we just stay at high level stats without getting into all the detail. But yeah, data and thought leadership is a big part of what we do at Campus ESP. So I just want to flip the script for you a little bit. You got 20% of your survey participants to become clients of a very young company. So uh, yeah, you, I think that's an accomplishment. Like, I think that's pretty good. It's probably though, when I, when I punch the hole in the door, which is like, how come I can't get them all to sign up? It felt, it felt like they should all jump over, especially when you have some crazy stats that just shows how involved they are and what an opportunity it is. I think for education leaders though, I mean, they have an endless list of priorities and they have to decide what moves the needle. And back then, you know, seven years ago, it didn't seem as critical as maybe it does now. Now I do feel like parent engagement is more of a need to have, especially coming out of COVID and enrollment pressures and things like that. So let's talk a little bit more about marketing because you, you had a positioning that you ended up kind of running away from, which was talking about like the super involved parents. So we only the early, have one. The early tagline. The early, the early tag, and actually, we only have one piece of intellectual property, and it is a tagline that I was very proud of myself that I created back in the day. It was, we give helicopter parents a place to land. And it made sense, right? And we would go to conferences like NACAC and NASPA and Educause, and we would have a giant helicopter with that phrase, and people would love it. They would come up and they'd get pictures in the booth. It was really great. And it was horrible. It was the wrong tagline because it just kind of decreased our value, right? We weren't trying to give them a place to land. We were trying to turn them into partners. So now our tagline is turn parents into partners, or we help you nudge the nudgers, you know, parents being the ultimate nudgers, or the difference is a parent, which has got a little bit of a wordplay thing in there. But that helicopter thing sounded so great, but as we understood the value that we could create on the enrollment side, we really needed to move away from it because at the end of the day, no parent's trying to be a helicopter parent. They're trying to be a partner. They're trying to help. And so that repositioning really helped us over the last couple of years talk about the value behind parent engagement. It makes sense now when you look back at it, that the idea that you can create a bond with a parent would seem high value, right? So it's sort of almost like an inside joke, the original tagline, right? Well, you know, you want to solve problems. So it seemed like the problem, which is like too many parent calls, too much parent involvement. But I don't know if parent involvement is the problem as much as like, where are they focused? Where are they focusing their energy? So that became the narrative, which is like, look, you're not going to change parent involvement levels, right? You're not going to tell that parent to back off. You're not going to set what they think is the right level of involvement. But if you can focus it, so they know how to support their student and when to get involved with like maybe the FAFSA or when to nudge them to get support that they need because they're struggling in school. All those things around redirecting that parent energy became more of the focus for our positioning. I'd love to talk a little bit about the mentoring that you do with other startups. What are the things you're seeing in these younger companies and what are the like the really important lessons you try and bring into those scenarios? You know, it may not be a general thing, we may have to draw from specifics here. But I just wonder what you're seeing in these mentor-mentee relationships. That's such a such a big question, I would say. And it really depends on the entrepreneur, their experience level. But what I try to encourage them to do is to create a business plan. I know that seems so basic. But a fully fleshed out business plan includes 
financial projections. And that seems to be where they really fall a lot of times because it's hard work. And the reality is, is nobody's going to look at the business plan except for the entrepreneur. But you need to put it on paper so that you can scrutinize your own plan and identify the risks and come up with mitigations for those risks. So I usually try to say, okay, where's your business plan? And they'll have like maybe two pages and they're like, okay, well, where are the financials? Where's the forecast? How does this all make sense at the end of the day? Because I mean, it's, it's a long journey. It's going to take an entrepreneur twice as long as they think every single time. And you need to have a good foundation for where you're trying to go. I can tell you the campus ESP business plan. I can't believe it. I go back to it today and it is very accurate to where we're at today. And a lot of that came from my experience, just having done education technology for a long time. But for younger entrepreneurs, we're just getting started. That business plan is really, really crucial. So you went from a kind of a nine to five kind of in air quotes, but you went from a job to entrepreneuring, right? Yeah. Are the people that you talk to in that same scenario often, is that where these people are? Or are they serial entrepreneurs still needing to hit you know, their first success? I think most successful entrepreneurs start as a side hustle and they are getting, the, it's, it's very tough to just hit the reset button and be successful. And actually, let me take a step back. This is my third startup. So my first startup was in wearable tech jewelry. I had no business doing it whatsoever. I really don't know anything about wearable tech or jewelry, but I did it because it was exciting to me. And I was kind of at like, I don't know, maybe midlife crisis kind of point. That failed, but I would do it over again. Absolutely. And then my second startup, I was COO for a company called Scali, which was on Shark Tank and was funded on Shark Tank. And it helps match students to financial aid. That was more in my wheelhouse. <laughs> that was better. And then Campus ESP, which I've been successful with, but you know, it's a journey. So I think for a lot of folks, they start off nights and weekends because they have to. You don't have the resources just to say, hey, I'm going to just try this super risky thing. You need to like think about where you're going and really, you know, where you're trying to get to as well. So what happened to the Scali startup? So Scali, so I'm based in Philadelphia. They eventually moved to Los Angeles. I'm pretty sure I was the oldest person on that team and I had a family and I was like, I I'm not moving to Los Angeles. <laughs> and so they're doing great. They're crushing it right now in, in LA. And that was always my jumping off point to campus ESP. But even when I was working on Scali, I was kind of doing some of those parent engagement reviews on the side for campus ESP. The, the CEO of Scali knew I was doing that. He knew, you know, I was still working full time. But like, like I said, nights and weekends, I was kind of like testing things out with campus ESP. So when they moved to the West Coast, it was the natural jumping off point for me. Interesting. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here and I really appreciate your time. If folks want to talk with you, like reach out to you about their own startups or any of the subjects we talked about today, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, just Dave at campusesp.com. Happy to help provide stories and especially if you're in education technology, provide you know connections if I can help. Awesome. And the website is campusesp.com. And uh, folks want to reach me, I'm on LinkedIn slash in slash Ken Lempit or KL at austinlawrence.com. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do. Available pretty much wherever podcasts are distributed these days. Hey, Dave, thanks again for a great episode. Really appreciate your time. Ken, thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed it and I appreciate your time.
Thanks for listening to the SaaS Backwards Podcast, brought to you by Austin Lawrence Group. We're a growth marketing agency that helps SaaS firms reduce churn, accelerate sales, and generate demand. Learn more about us at www.austinlawrence.com. You can email Ken Lempett at kl at austinlawrence.com about any SaaS marketing or customer retention subject. We hope you'll subscribe, and thanks again for listening.